This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers. And this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend, Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And occasionally we're kicking copyright information in the butt one word at a time. And if you're not careful with copyright, it can kick you in the butt one copyright at a time. (laughs) Okay, that works, kind of. (laughs) So Taylor, once again, this week is not telling me what our chit-chat is about, so... Take it away, Taylor. All right. So Steve's like, am I going to cringe again? And I was like, you very well might. So right on the heels of my (laughs) ER adventure with the fish hook, um, I I got bit. (laughs) So we have have a cat. He's a very little boy. Um, And his vet calls says he has a squatty body. He doesn't look that much bigger than an older kitten. And... um, when he was adopted, we don't really know what his past was, um, but he was obviously either had been abused or was feral at some point. Because when we got him, he did not. He was very standoffish and very aggressive. Did not want to be touched. Um, if you tried to touch him or pet him, he would bite you. So we knew from the beginning: be very careful with this little guy. And he was just a cat, but he had lots of personality and he was fun. He clearly liked people, but just didn't know how to interact with him. And sometimes he would get to playing with you and he did not understand the concept of not using claws. Like he would claw you and bite you, but he was playing. He didn't know better. Um, So I don't think he was properly socialized as a kitten either. So over the years, I think he's been with us for like three years or so now, he's calmed down a lot and he's turned into such a sweet, loving cat. And he's learned to warn you when you do something that makes him unhappy and he'll swat at you and he'll make a move like he's going to bite you, but he doesn't actually bite you. He's basically just saying, leave me alone. You go, okay. And you back off. And so he and I have a really fun relationship. He loves to play with me. We play games. And over the years, I've taught him not to be aggressive with me. Um, He no longer claws me when he's trying to to grab or play. He uses his paws instead. And you can tell he likes likes the attention. He does things to try and get my attention. He wants me to engage with him. And um, he... He doesn't really care for being picked up all that too much, but he'll like kind of go and complain at you, but then that's that's it. And so, you know, the the wariness or the guardedness that I've had with him all this time is just kind of settled down. It's been so long since he's even tried to open his mouth and uh warn me against anything. And the other night I went. I was, I was petting him and he was just like all into it. And I went to move him and he did his little, and I was like, Hey, sh-, you know, I'm, I'm going to put you down. And he leaned over and he tried to take my arm off. <laughs> he bit me so hard that I, 
I didn't even, I, I just had to freeze. And, and, and I just kind of lowered him with my arm in his jaws and I was in shock. Like it, it, it was just out of the blue, the way he, it's, it's as if three years had just vanished and, and he was how he was way back when. And, and I, it hurt so bad that I, I, tears started coming out of my eyes. Like he hit nerves in my hand. He bit me right on my wrist, like on the top part of the wrist where the, the hand joins, joins the arm right in there where, you know, and when I first looked at it, it didn't really look like he'd done that much damage. Uh, it looked more like blood blisters. So I went into the bathroom. I know cat bites can be pretty serious and you have to be careful with them. And I still had all my antibiotics and all the stuff, all the, all the cleaning supplies I got from the hospital. So I, I did that, but it hurt so bad to touch it, to even put water on it. I, 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 I couldn't even like, I had no words for how this level of pain, like what, what is this, you know? And, and I have for the most part, a pretty high pain tolerance. And usually my reaction when pain gets to be too much is I just throw up. Like, and then I go, I, I just keep going, you know, okay. Okay. The pain made me throw up and this, and, and I, I can't remember the last time I've actually shed tears because of pain, but that's how bad this was. And, and so because I couldn't touch it, the best that I could do was just get antibiotic ointment onto it. And I figured that would be okay because, you know, it didn't really seem to have broken much skin. And, and I just, you know, bandaged it up and, and just was like, I was so mad. I, I was so offended and so heart sick hurt that he did this to me. Like, how could you? We were friends and I loved you and you loved me. And now you just burned it all to the ground. I didn't, didn't look at him for two days. I was so mad. Um, but the next morning when I, you know, cause I couldn't move my hand, I couldn't move my wrist. It was in so much pain. I couldn't even, I couldn't clench my hand. And I was really seriously debating, do I, do I go to the hospital for this or not? I was like, I'm not going back to the ER. I'm just not. <laughs> oh, you again. <laughs> um, and so the next morning when I took those band-aids off, I was like, Oh crap. He broke skin, all right. Those those went deep, but I just couldn't see it in the moment, and so it was like starting to get really welted and swollen and infected. And I'm just like, oh my god, I don't want to go to the ER. So by this time, the the initial pain had worn off enough. I mean, I still couldn't use my hand. I couldn't bend my wrist. It was swollen, but I I could handle this level of pain. And so I was just in there with a like a, a blade, opening these wounds up, trying to get them like wide enough that I could get hydrogen peroxide into them. Because when they're deep down there under the skin, if you can't disinfect them, then you've I don't want to lose my hand. <laughs> go necrotic or, or get sepsis or, or whatever. So I was in there just like, you know, mumbling very, very unkind things at the cat under my breath <laughs> and trying to open these things up and get them and three pretty, pretty severe punctures. And so I finally, this is, I think, day four, and it's gotten to where there's, I don't really see any infection besides just the area where the, the wounds themselves are. But I'm still, I'm still really like, on the fence, like my hand swelling is still not gone down and I'm, but I can use my hand completely now. Like it, it hurts where the wounds are, but I, and, and I still feel a little nerve twingings if I, if I 
push on them at all. I can feel uh, shots of electricity going up and down my arm, but it's not so bad that I can't use my hand or anything, but I'm still, I'm still in the fence. I'm watching it very, very carefully because, you know, if, if it starts looking like it's taking a turn for worse, I am going to have to go get it professionally taken care of. So that's my, my story. And I'm hoping that that's it. I'm hoping that I, I can't, I, I'm done universe. I'm done. No more ouchies, please for a while. Wow, you've had an adventurous few weeks. Yeah, <laughs> adventurous few months, actually. But anyway. Yeah. So the cat, that, we've had cats uh, for years. And every time one of the cats has bit us, they, they get this look in their face like, uh-oh, what did I just do? Did, was there any of that? Or was he just like totally, like you, you did something wrong and you deserved it? I think... I, I, I think, I don't know. It's hard for me to tell. I can't tell if he was like, sorry, or if he's just sorry because I've been ignoring him. Like the other day, both of the cats were on the, on the bed together and I went over and I pet one of them and he could see what I was doing. I could see him watching me out of the corner of my eye. And without moving my head, I just cut my eyes over to, to look at him. And I made eye contact for about half a second and he turned his head and looked away. <laughs> like, I dare not look at you. <laughs> but you could tell he was like, and, and me? And what about me? Why are you not petting me? So I, yesterday I finally pet him again, and he was very sweet and kind to me. But I don't know if in his little cat brain he registers what it was that made me so angry. I suspect not. I suspect not, too. But I still look at him and go, you bit me. <laughs> we are not friends. <laughs> not until this heals, and I know I don't have to go to the ER. <laughs> All right, let's talk about copyright. Okay, so when we left off last week, um, we had taught, we said that we would talk about, uh, I would explain my pie analogy a little bit clearer, and, and we would talk about what happens uh, when you want to if you own the copyright still and you own rights for film what would the process would be for for selling your film rights and then um steve and i when we were talking before the show uh he was explaining an example of a copyright situation that he'd come upon uh and i I don't know that we can necessarily get into all the weeds about it but i think we can probably touch on it in a um in a generalized way because it also leads into helping to understand the way we separate, and a lot of people really struggle to separate copyright and the income that can come in from owner, owning copyright. They're not the same thing. So the way that I, the, the easiest way for me to explain it, and we've used this analogy on the show before, but it's been quite some time, so I'm going to refresh it, is um, a pie, right? Copyright, creation and ownership of this intellectual property is like a pie tin, that tin is what holds the pie, and the pie is the intellectual property itself. And so you, as the, the creator, you own both the pie tin and the pie that's inside the tin. And when you sell, let's say, uh, rights to publish your book to a publisher, what you're doing is you're cutting out a big part of that pie and you're giving the pie to the publisher and you still have the tin and whatever is left of that pie. It's still yours. Now, once you've cut 
that pie out and given it to somebody else, then it's theirs. They can do whatever they want with it. You don't have any say so over it. It's gone unless they choose to give it back, which we discussed last week that every contract is going to have should have terms of what that would involve. But the pie tin, you could keep on dishing out pie from that pie tin and that the, the portion of the pie that's yours keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller, but the tin is still yours unless or until you decide to give that tin away or you decide to give a portion of that tin away. But for the most part, there's no reason to do that unless you're dying um, and, and you want to you know inherit it. I can't remember the word. Um, you want to bestow it or whatever to somebody or you want to gift it, bequeath it, or even sell it. But once you do that, once you have sold that copyright or any portion of that copyright, you've lost ownership now. It is no longer yours at all. Not just the rights, but the thing itself is no longer yours. You Sure, sure you created it, but it's not yours anymore. And if you've given those copyrights, you've sold the copyright, given the copyright to somebody else, well, then they can sell it do whatever they want with it, and you have no say-so in, in that either unless there were stipulations put into the agreement that were attached to that uh, transaction of giving it or, or selling it or whatever. So when you are, when you've made this pie, there's no order in which dishing it out has to go. You keep it all or none. You can you can divide it a million different ways. Any any way that somebody can see conceive to use these ideas of yours, these things that you've created, they will be a part of that pie. And so even if you've never sold your book as a book to be published, even if you've never published it yourself, if somebody comes along and wants to make a movie out of it, well, then those are specific rights that will be cut out of that pie. So let's say in a hypothetical situation, you've written a book, uh, you've self-published the book, so all the rights are still yours, and someone from a film company comes along and decides that they want to buy those rights, what happens? Well, now you're in a position of being able to sell those rights, and it's going to vary uh, tremendously. Uh, If you have agents, it's going to be a completely different path. If you don't have agents, then that's different. But uh, you would probably never want to get involved in a film contract without a film agent. Like even authors who have book agents do not get involved in film contracts or should not get involved in film contracts without film agents because intellectual property is a very specialized uh, form of transaction And even though agents themselves are not lawyers, they are highly specialized in that particular form of intellectual property. So an agent might not be an intellectual property lawyer, but will understand intellectual property in regards to publishing in a way that an intellectual property lawyer or an agent from a different aspect of intellectual property would not. So film is very, uh, the the contracts are very complex. There's a lot of... um, legalese involved that mean things that maybe we as lay person, lay people, they mean things that we wouldn't assume that they mean, or we don't always understand that they mean. So ideally, 
if you had somebody who approached you directly saying, hey, I want to make a movie out of this, you would either have a film agent lined up that you could uh, pass them on to, which is rare if you're not already connected, or you would go and find a film agent and say, hey, I have this intellectual property and I have a buyer who's interested and I'm looking for an agent and would you like to represent me? And then that process would continue. So um, if, but there's nothing stopping you from just signing an agreement straight out with the people who want to have that portion of your pie. Could you also own it? In that, in that situation, could you also then just, rather than hiring an agent, could you just hire a, uh, an intellectual property attorney that deals with film rights? Yes, you could, absolutely. And I cannot speak to the film industry specifically, but as to the book industry, there are cons against doing that, only in that agents typically are much more versed in the nuance of the current market. They have a sense of what they can get for you that maybe is not on the table based on prior things. They know what other things have sold. So unless that intellectual property lawyer is also tuned into that particular market, they may potentially miss things. Like the, the legalese will all be there according to their knowledge, but they might not have that insider understanding of what the current market is. Uh, so you could end up missing out on things or not. Mm-hmm. It's but in the long run, you're paying a single fee, and you're not. They're not taking percentage out of your as a commission out of your earnings in for forever of of that material. So it's you know, again, it's up to you. If you already have a buyer, then maybe an intellectual property lawyer might be the best thing for you because you already already know who you want to sell it to. You might already be on terms where you feel confident negotiating for yourself. I don't know. I don't personally have that level of confidence. It would make me nervous. But if you don't feel that you have a high value uh, piece of property and you're just willing to let it go and not worry about it, that's that's entirely your, de- your decision. Um, my point of view is it's all valuable. I don't know how it's valuable but it's valuable to me. So I'm not going to just give it away and I'm going to fight you tooth and nail for everything that you want and make you work for it, which may end me up with zero. And I'm okay with that. Um, so if you have an agent, a book, if you've, if you've sold your book traditionally through the traditional market and you have an agent, then most agents who are worth their salt already have connections in the film industry to hook you up with a film agent as well, film agents that they work with. And so everything will then go through your book agent. And when the material sells, for example, that book agent will be involved in the negotiations and will be discussing things with you in addition to the film agent. And they will, they, the, the book agent will already have from the beginning in their contract or your agreement saying we take X percentage of film rights. So when they coordinate with the film agent to sell the work, they will take their commission and then split that commission with the film agent. So you're not getting extra taken out. Um, So it's all sort of already baked in what your, Mm. your expenses are going to be in that regard. And then often what will happen is instead of the film 
side of it coming in and just buying the rights outright, which can be a bit expensive, they usually come in and say, we want to option the rights. And they create an option contract, which allows them to buy it in full at a later date for X price. And they give you a percentage of that up front for the privilege of not selling it to anybody else while they're waiting to decide if they can get talent and producers and whatnot all on board for this project. Um, so that's more or less how it would work, regardless of if you're doing it yourself or going through an agent or a book agent or going directly through a film agent. There, um, whoever is buying it, generally for the most part, is going to want to option it first, see if they can get together the funding and, and all the other elements that go into getting a movie produced, and then once they've got that lined up, then go ahead and buy it outright. And at that point, you no longer own it. It's theirs. And, um, and it's really, really theirs in all known universes forever. And, you know, the language just goes on and on. So <laughs> that's how that works, more or less. Well, let's, um, b- before you shift off film rights, is, yeah. is that, were you getting ready to transition into some other yes. rights? Okay. Before we get to that, I was reminded as you were talking of the story that I'd read uh, back in mid-February in The Hollywood Reporter about the character of Jack Ryan, who is uh, Tom, one of Tom Clancy's most well-known characters. And the title to the article is, A Judge Can't Figure Out Who Owns the Rights to the Jack Ryan Character. Oh, I want to read that. I want to read it, that so It's bad. a great article, but I, I'll just highlight, uh, I'll, I'll just read one paragraph of it. It, it just... It, there were so many different scenarios that went through this, but what happened initially was the book was, the book came out, it was popular, the film rights were sold to Paramount. And then years later, someone wanted to do more movies with uh, Jack Ryan. And, he, and so that brings us to this paragraph. Rights were divided and assigned throughout the years, although a degree of confusion had long lingered. For example, in 2008, when Paramount, that was the, the company that originally bought the film rights, announced it was developing a new movie titled Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit. Clancy wrote to his agent and said, hey, how, how could this happen? And his agent wrote back to him and said, the problem with all of this is that you have no legal way to stop them from using the Jack Ryan character because long before I met you, prior representatives gave away the rights to use Jack Ryan to Paramount at their discretion without your permission or involvement. And at the time, they, you know, they would have gotten a check for for the for the sale of the movie rights or the option or you know however it however it started and it probably seemed like a fortune at that time but here years later and multiple um, series and movies etc 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 there's an 89 page legal document in here that you can scroll through if you're if you're so inclined but it's a fascinating story that just talks about the importance of copyright and really understanding what you're doing. Can you can you include that in the show links and also can you send it to me because I am fascinated by it. I will. And and to this subject, I, I can add like my experience is only my experience. I have my contracts to go off of. I've never seen anybody else's film contracts, but I do know this in my contract, and and um, it says specifically that they like I'm giving them the rights to the character. There's no doubt about that. So no one else 
ever has a right to use Monroe in any other film production at all, ever. There is no question about that. So depending on how that contract was originally written, maybe there was some some ambiguity of it. So in my case, not only am I well aware that I have signed over the rights to the character, um, there's no question that I do not have that right to give someone else that right to the character. But in addition to that, and this is what is interesting to me in the this particular scenario that you brought up, and again, I have not read it, so I, could, I, I might not have all the details straight. In my case, this option was for only one book, but they have the right to do other books if they want to. I don't have any say-so in that. That's already baked into the contract, but if they do, they have to pay me. It's not like they have this one movie option and then they can just do whatever they want with the character forever, which they can, but without compensating me for for doing that. So the the amount of money they would have to pay for future movies if they so chose to continue producing visual film whatever with these characters is already baked into that original contract as well. And so it would seem to me for there to be that ambiguity over who actually owns the right to the character um, that wasn't would not have been clear in the original contract. But in addition to that, how is he not getting paid for these future movies like in that original contract did it just say hey yeah we bought the rights to hit to the character for this amount and now we're going to do whatever we want with it but yeah you can still do sell them to other people too like what movie maker in their right mind buys a character and then says doesn't put in there that you can't sell that character to somebody else like wait what how did this happen so i am very interested to to read this to read this ruling you know it's fascinating see. because you know this this ongoing court case is is just it's ongoing and uh, but yet we st- we still see the the new jack ryan series each year coming out with new episodes on uh, yeah. on amazon prime yeah. So, yeah, I definitely want to to read that because I in the same as with last last week's episode where I was like, I have a personal dog in this fight. Well, which is a horrible thing to say. I don't believe in fighting <laughs> dogs. It's just a saying. Um, yeah, I, I also have one in this, too. You know, so I, I'm very interested to see how it goes. So with all of that said, and I'm, you know, we've kind of just skirted around this issue of, you know, film rights. I'm sure, you know, every situation is about what about what about what about? And we just kind of talked about it on a general level. So let me ask you a question. We see lots of situations where there are are high-profile authors who, once they reach a certain level of success, um, begin to collaborate with other authors. We talk about James Patterson a lot on this show, and James Patterson is is someone who's famous for doing that, and that's one of the reasons he's able to publish so many books. And I was curious at one time and looked to see how the copyrights were handled on those books. And I don't know technically how they're handled, but at the front of the books, on the ones where I was able to, to see the copyright, it was the copyright was owned by James Patterson. It was not owned by right. James Patterson and the collaborator. It was owned by James Patterson. So why would that be? He who controls the copyright controls the work. So if you, for example, were to split copyright right, um, with two people, It's like uh, owning property. It is literally like owning property. And 
there are multiple types of property ownership. <laughs> so we're talking about the type of property ownership, and I, I forget the exact legal term, but it's where each person owns their share separately from the other. So like in some forms of property ownership, if one person dies, then their ownership automatically passes over to the other owner of the copyright. Or if there's multiple copyright owners and one person dies, their uh, copyright owner, their ownership of that property gets divided equally amongst uh, the other owners. And there's a legal term for that. And I don't remember what it is. So I'm not going to embarrass myself and, and say the wrong thing here. Um, but so when we're talking about copyright ownership, unless there's some form of written agreement established between the two, that is a, is a legal contract. Let's say you have two people who, who, um, who collaborated together. If they share copyright and there is not some form of legal agreement saying what would happen if one of those people died and the other didn't, then when that person dies, their half of the copyright goes to their state. And whatever the state decides to do with it, that's up to them. Or they could decide that they want to sell their half of the copyright. And the person, the other half owner, unless there's something legally in writing that would prevent it or give them some say, so they have no say over what that copyright holder does with their copyright. So you could be in a partnership with two people who really get along and then one of the and then there's a falling out maybe and say that partner, one of the partners goes, you know what? I really freaking hate your guts now. So I'm going to sell my copyright to this work to your worst enemy. And now you can't do anything without 50% approval with, you know, if you want to sell it, if you want to do make any decisions of what to do with this intellectual property work, you cannot do that without the approval of whoever owns the other 50% who now hates your guts. And it it's like you basically just, it, it just turns into a, a legal nightmare. So copy, co he who owns the cop, he who owns copyright controls product. You, you own the copyright, you get to say what happens with it. But that is not the same as saying, I own the copyright, I get all the money from this. That's separate, right? So you own the copyright. But when you are working with a partner, then there's going to, needs to be some kind of legal agreement between the two of you saying, so-and-so um, owns copyright, but if this sells, then... X percentage goes to partner one to writer one and X percentage goes to writer two. So whoever owns the copyright is controlling the decisions of where it's selling, how much it's selling for, whatever. But the other guy who was the or woman who was the um, the co-writer uh, will get a percentage of those sales as per whatever agreement they had between each other. And in a case like James Patterson, well, it's duh, of course he's going to be the one who controls those things and you'd be an idiot to fight him on that, right? But if you're two people just starting out, neither of you has sold books, you're you're both broke, you have no idea where your work is going to go from here on out, then how do you decide who's who owns the copyright, right? So you may... There may be workarounds. For example, uh, you might be advised to form a company and the company owns the copyright. And then that company has rules about what happens 
and and it's treated the copyright itself is treated as shares. I would be fascinated to find out what kind of agreements um, writing partners like uh, Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child have mm, because yeah. they've been writing for together for decades and mega bestsellers. Um, maybe they are both copyright, both hold copyright. I just have no idea how that goes, but I would be fascinated to learn how it goes because if you start off from nowhere where both of you are equal and then you become very successful, that's like getting married fresh out of high school and then building up a a massive fortune together and then getting divorced. Like how do you split those assets other than 50-50 down the middle, and what happens if it becomes vicious, right? You just don't think of those things when you first start out because you don't have anything. So those are the types of things you have to keep in mind. Do not give up your copyright easily thinking that it doesn't mean anything, and don't give it up thinking that that somehow it's attached to the idea of fair pay, Two completely separate things. Interesting. So let's let's get back to the pie. Okay. And so we've we've got the the most obvious piece of the pie are the the rights to the book, uh, the, the book book, um, and then then there are the audio rights. And you know I'm sure people are familiar with that. We've talked about film rights, but one thing we haven't talked about is foreign rights. And with foreign rights, is that the kind of thing that you just sell the foreign rights? Or do you, is that something where you can just keep slicing that pie into different languages? Okay, so when you're speaking of foreign rights, you're, for clarification, you're speaking of foreign print rights. Correct, yes. Right? Okay, so what we're looking at right now is the specific quadrant of the, book, of the pie that we're going to call print rights, publication rights. And within publication, you you have audio, print, ebook, maybe serialized uh, first edition. I mean, um, uh, large print editions, library editions, uh, abridged editions. There's multiple ways that a book could actually show up in readable form, whether it's audio, electronic, or physical book. Right. That's all going to be inside that quadrant. And then there's the issue of, okay, so when when a U.S. publisher wants your your book, it's almost like that quadrant gets cut into two. So now we're looking at eighths, right? So the one-eighth of that pie would be the U.S. market, or I think that's the U.S. and maybe the Philippines and a couple other places that all fall under this U.S. umbrella, maybe Canada too. Um, and, and that's sort of like standard for print, uh, in us companies, but a lot of, so whether or not they're going to want to be able to do all other languages as well is going to depend on your book, the publisher, whether it's a rights grab or not, and, um, how much they're paying you. So the way that foreign rights work as that other eighth of the pie is they also would include ebook, audio, print, right? So within that eighth, you've got 40, 50, 60, 70 different smaller languages. 
And each one of those languages would be another division or sliver of that eight. So let's say there's Portuguese, right? There's Brazilian Portuguese, there's European Portuguese. And each of those countries have publishers and that publish books in those languages. So if when you've sold your book, you've only slivered off an eighth of the pie and you've retained your world rights, then anything that's not English within Canada, United States, maybe the Philippines, and I'm not 100% sure how it all works exactly, is still up for grabs, it's still for sale. So publishers from foreign countries could want to buy those from you still, and they would approach your agent. And your agent would work with another agent to directly sell those rights to a foreign country. And they would the foreign country would handle the, the translations and would have their own contract with you. And it would all they would pay your agent directly. And then that's a whole other income stream. But these days, a lot of publishers are trying to take that whole quarter. And when they take that whole quarter, they will say, okay, if we sell these foreign rights, and so I can just call them sub-rights, really, because there's other things involved, like large print or whatever, um, then you will get X percentage of the sale. So usually, for the most part, publishers will take 25% of any sub-rights from abroad. I think it's 20% from England and um, 25% for audio or what, what have you. So the if the publisher has grabbed that whole quarter, then they're going to turn around and sell off. See, you've just given them a whole quarter of the pie. Now they can start dividing off that pie and selling the pie to other people. And then whatever they sell, they're going to take their percentage out of. And that's a percentage that you would not have lost if the foreign publishers were buying directly from you via your agent. It's like there's another middleman involved and and it just mean, takes that much longer before you get paid because the foreign publisher is going to have a thing where they're not going to pay and they only pay twice a year where that falls in the calendar with your publisher, who knows? And then the payment finally gets to your publisher and then they only pay twice a year. And then finally it, so it could be a year and a half, two years before you see the first money from the foreign sale. If it's going from publisher to publisher, to your agent, to you, Mm. Um, and you're getting an extra 25% cut out of it. But here's the thing, not all agents are really connected enough with foreign agents to direct sell those books on your behalf, to direct sell those rights on your behalf. And what publishers do is they will take the these these rights that they want to sell and they'll take them to foreign um, like markets, like the Frank Book, Frankfurt Book Fair, the London Book Fair, whatever. And that's where all these agents and book scouts and publishers are coming to one place to see what else is on the market and sort of get a sense of, hey, do do my reader, will my readers like this? And so when your publisher takes that full quarter, even though you're losing money from it and it's going to take forever for you to to get paid for it, they, um, they do have a better shot at selling your work if you're an unknown author. If you're a best-selling author or you have a book that's gone really big, you would probably be better off 
retaining world rights. But some publishers have that as a sticking point. We're not taking your book unless you give us world rights. So it that's where having a good agent comes into play. Is it worth it? Are you giving away, are you leaving money on the table because you're not saying no to this, that, or the other? Can you even sell it to another publisher? Have you exhausted your options? Is this the best that you're going to get? Is it this or nothing? Like Those are the things that they would be able to advise you and tell you. And they have, if they're an ethical agent, they're going to tell you the truth for what's best for you, not what's best for them, because they have a fiduciary responsibility to do that. So in this day and age, as publishing keeps getting bigger and the conglomerates keep swallowing all the little guys, there are fewer and fewer and fewer places that you can actually sell works in the traditional traditioning publishing market. The publishers have more power to say, <clears throat> this is our contract, take it or leave it. And a really good agent might be able to wiggle away certain certain aspects of that based on their prior experience with the publisher, prior contracts that they have um, with that publisher, or even knowing that there is another publisher that is interested in taking on this book. Then they might have a little more sway. But that's becoming less and less and less as the publishing market uh becomes more compressed as far as how many big houses there are because once you're down to the big three or the big whatever you mm -hmm. can't submit to all the imprint like you can you get one shot at, at an imprint within that and then that's it so even though there might be you know 50 different quote-unquote publishing houses if they all fall under three umbrellas you really have three places to go three out of you get three shots right which is very different than you know, even 10 years ago where you might have had 20 shots to try and find somebody who wanted, you know, this book. So the fewer opportunities you have to sell a work, unless it's one of those rare hot items where there's a bidding war on it or people are just like wanting to preempt it. And here, I'll give you this much if you don't take it to anybody else. You really are sort of in a take it or leave it situation. And it's up to your agent to try and figure out how hard they can push to get you the best deal based on those parameters. So the odds of being able to retain world right, uh, the, the foreign rights are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Interesting. And as you can tell from listening to this, we could go on forever about this topic because it's A, it's fascinating, and B, it's essentially endless. It just... There, there are so many ways in which you can you can sell rights to intellectual property, and as as Taylor's mentioned, the the, the world is evolving so quickly. Um, it, it it is absolutely fascinating, but it, it's also as with the case of uh, the Jack Ryan stuff, it, it's kind of a cautionary tale as well. You need to you need to really pay attention to this stuff and understand what you're signing when you sign it. Yeah, and, and for that, I just want to, I know we have to close, and we're, again, we've probably gone way over time as well, but um, if you do end up in a situation where you're fortunate to have a contract, even if it's through uh, Amazon's imprints or whatever, uh, and even if it is a take it or leave it contract where you know that, well, this is what you're signing if you want to you know, be published, that's fine. You already know you're going to sign it, but at least ask what these things mean. So you know when you're going into it uh, aware of what, you're handing over and ask your if you have an agent ask your agent that's what they're there for they want they actually love answering questions like that most of them do because the more informed you are the easier it is for them to do their job 
and unless they have to second guess or whatever and and they they know exactly where you're coming from so if you don't understand something ask you can say walk me through this line by line what does this mean and they'll do it for you because that's the job all right well thank you taylor that was very informative and uh thank you guys for listening we will be back in your ear again next tuesday thanks for being here see you guys next week